I'm Justin Reich, and from the studios at MIT, this is Teach Lab. We're continuing with our special series on teaching during the coronavirus pandemic. It's been so incredible to watch teachers across the country face these challenges with such compassion and bravery. Everything from delivering meals to distributing computers, creating new worksheet packets and online courses. Today's episode was recorded during a live webinar with Facing History and Ourselves, a teacher professional learning organization focused on helping educators and students confront the tragedies of the Holocaust and other difficult eras in the human experience. I sat down with Laura Tavares and an online audience of Facing History educators to help teachers think through their emergency pivot to online learning. Laura and the audience asked great questions, and we got to the heart of the issue very quickly. How do we support our most vulnerable students in uncertain times? You can find the full webinar and all the resources we mentioned in our show notes. If you're inspired by the conversation, I hope you'll consider joining us in our new free online course hosted by edX, Becoming a More Equitable Educator, Mindsets and Practices. Go to edX.org and search for Justin Reich or Becoming a More Equitable Educator, or find links to the course at teachlabpodcast.com. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm so happy that we can gather tonight as a community of educators. Um, at Facing History and Ourselves, we're an educational and professional development organization that's been working for over 40 years to help teachers and students use the lessons of history to stand up to bigotry and hate. When the coronavirus outbreak first began, we were really thinking about it through the lens of the uh, pattern of stereotyping and scapegoating against um, Asian Americans and people of Asian descent around the world. Um, but as time has passed, of course, we've seen the, um, the public health crisis begin to impact us in our schools and the wave of school closures. Um, when I looked earlier today, schools are closed in 39 states, um, 91,000 schools affecting over 41 million students, including, I'm sure, many of your students. So some of you might be in a place of asking a lot of um, logistical questions, the nuts and bolts of how do I set up an online learning space? Do my students even have devices that they can use? How can they get access to them? Um, some of you might be sorting through different tech platforms. We'll be sharing a little bit of um, information and ideas to help you think through that, but we'll primarily be focusing on um, some other questions that come after you have a plan, questions about how you create community in this new learning space, how you connect with students, and how you create engaging learning experiences. So if you know Facing History, you know that um, our work deals with difficult moments in history, and it aims to help young people become more equitable, more engaged, and more responsible decision makers who can build more just and inclusive societies. So we have always in our work understood the conversation between the head and the heart in learning, between the intellectual and the effective. Um, we've always thought about promoting equitable school practices and student-centered learning, and we know how important it is to build trust and community in the classroom. So our question tonight is, how do we sustain these values? How do we continue to center students and nurture a learning community, even as we figure out how to work with our students um, at a distance, online perhaps, um, at a time of great affective demands when there's a lot of um, 
isolation and anxiety that we're facing. We're going to begin um, by talking with Justin Reich, my former colleague at Facing History, a former history teacher himself, um, but now a real expert in the world of um, educational technology and online learning. He's now the executive director of the Teaching Systems Lab here in Boston at MIT, and he's a research scientist who studies digital learning. He's also the co-founder of a professional learning consultancy called EdTech Teacher, which is devoted to helping teachers leverage technology to create student-centered and inquiry-based learning environments. So exactly the sort of thing that we want to address tonight. So Justin, now we know a little bit about who we have here in the room with us in this digital space. Um, I would love to start off by asking you just to share a little bit about your own background in, in ed tech. I know you used it when you were um, a teacher in the classroom and then in your own research. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, as a researcher and a practitioner, what are your insights about what works when we're trying to um, reach students online in teaching and learning? It's great. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for having me, Laura, and thanks everyone for joining. I uh, was a high school history teacher uh, for a number of years. Um, when I started teaching, um, they said, but the department head who was hiring me said, can you teach world history? And I said, no, but I promise by September I'll figure out how to do so if you hire me. Um, and he said, well, maybe. And then he said, uh, and by the way, you're going to teach in a classroom and there's going to be a cart of laptops in the corners. They were the old uh, blue and orange clamshell MacBooks, um, if anybody remembers that particularly distinctive form factor. Um, and I said, you can put a cart of bananas in the back corner of the classroom and I'll teach with them. I just, I really need this job. Um, and so he hired me, um, very fortunately. And, uh, you know, I, we... This was in 2003, uh, we, where I was able to teach in this school that for this classroom had one-to-one -one laptops. We had a tool called First Class, which basically did everything that Google um, Suite for Education does now, but through an internet rather than through the through the cloud. Um, and uh, I loved it. You know, what I really loved about it was it felt like it gave me the opportunity to take responsibility, some of the responsibility for learning off my shoulders and put it on the shoulders of my students. Um, it was at a time when museums and archives and uh, public institutions all around the world were digitizing content. And so, you know, I remember being in a seventh grade world history, uh, seventh grade U.S. history classroom. At the beginning of the year, the teacher gave us um, a textbook and then a primary source reader, which had 20 documents from the Mayflower Compact, the letter from a Birmingham jail. And that was the entirety of what we would be able to read together all year. Um, and so to be able to just, you know, on a whim be like, oh, I wonder if, you know, the Smithsonian has uh, song sheets from the Harlem Renaissance. Oh, they have thousands of them. Everyone can pick a hundred that's their own. Um, you just realize it can be a sort of profoundly different era for, for teaching and learning. Um, so I ended up leaving teaching for totally random family reasons and uh, helped start this consultancy called Ed Tech Teacher, working with schools all over the place. Um, I went to Harvard and studied um, how teachers in schools were integrating technology in different ways, um, and then started this lab at MIT, um, which investigates how teachers learn online. And over the last few years, um, with a team, I've taught uh, four uh, these large-scale open online courses. Um, on a variety of topics, and we have a new one which just soft launched uh, on Tuesday and is fully launching on the 24th um, called Becoming a More Equitable Educator, uh, Mindsets and Practices that I'm teaching with Rich Milner um, at Vanderbilt. So um, some of my own personal experiences teaching with a lot of technology in classrooms and then also teaching online and really trying to study. I get, if you wanted to su summarize my research, 
a question that I've asked over and over again over the last 15 or so years now is how do people from different backgrounds and different life circumstances access and use technology differently? Um, that is a question that I found really rewarding to ask uh, over and over again um, in, the, in the last few years. Thanks, Justin. And that's such an interesting question, because in a way, that's exactly what we're facing right now as um, teachers in all kinds of schools, reaching kids from all kinds of backgrounds and circumstances are um, being thrust into this role of teaching online. Um, so I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, in that research, um, what have you learned about what works um, in terms of online engagement and also in your own practice? And then um, we'll make sure that we talk after also about what some of the challenges are. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, one great thing about people is that uh, in some respects, we're universal. Um, so the, the brains that you address in your classroom are the same brains that are at the other end of a screen. Um, if I were to give all teachers who are thinking about this transition to online learning one piece of advice to start with, and I have a few others, but, but one to really start with before you start thinking about what platform you're going to use or how you're going to change your curriculum, it would be really think of this as an exercise to be done in partnership with your students. Um, people feel motivated. People feel engaged when they feel like they're part of something. Um, and all of us feel like COVID-19 is a thing that's happening to us, um, but our response to it can be something that we build together. Um, so, you know, for people who haven't uh, had their schools closed yet, um, talk to people in person about this. If your school has closed and you're in transition, start thinking about how am I going to survey students? How am I going to email them? You know, students do a ton of learning. All of us do a lot of learning online. We have a lot of ideas about what works and what doesn't work for us. And a great first place to start is just what kinds of online learning have worked for you in the past? And there's two things that will happen there. One of those things is that students will give us ideas that we can actively use and will make us do better. And then a second thing of that um, is it'll just make people feel like they're more involved. Um, one of my favorite uh, education quotes is from Kurt Hahn, who's the founder of Outward Bound, um, which is an organization that was actually founded in World War II and has some uh, um, Holocaust and human behavior connections. It was uh, Kurt Hahn founded it because uh, British boats kept getting sunk by German U-boats. Um, and Kurt Hahn figured, found, discovered that uh, older sailors were surviving longer than younger sailors and was trying to figure out why. But he has a line, which is that there are three ways of trying to win the young. There is persuasion, there is compulsion, and there is attraction. You can preach at them. That is a hook without a worm. You can say you must volunteer, and that is of the devil. Or you can tell them you are needed, and that appeal hardly ever fails. Um, so I think it's a time to tell our students that they're needed. That's beautiful. So there's one starting point. Here are two second starting points from the research, which also are going to sort of start weaving in some of these challenges. Um, the first is that um, most people don't learn as well online as they do in face-to-face -face settings when they're trying to learn within the context of a school curriculum. Um, so all, you know, a crazy thing about online learning is I bet everyone on this webinar can think of something that they've learned really, really well online, um, that they've learned how to cook, that they've learned how to unclog their toilet, that they've learned how to beat a level in a video game. There's all kinds of things that we're constantly learning online. Um, and when those things are interest-driven, when those things are passion-driven, when they connect us with communities online, um, those can be really powerful, valuable learning experiences. 
But the evidence suggests that in sort of typical school contexts, if we try to take you from, you know, an Algebra 2 class online uh, on campus to an Algebra 2 class online, you'll probably do worse in the class online. It, this is less. So sometimes we call that the online penalty. There is less of a penalty for people who are good at learning anywhere. Um, people who are advanced in a subject, people who are older, people who are already affluent, people who are already educated, um, they tend to do really well in online settings. Um, so there's research, there's a research in a, a study in Maine. Um, lots of middle schools have no access to an advanced algebra course. So they gave the kids who are looking for an advanced algebra course, an algebra course online. And on average, those kids do fine. Um, the students who experience the most online penalty across different settings tend to be students with low prior achievement, with low grades, um, students from ethnic and racial minorities in the United States, um, younger students. Basically, all of the students who are struggling most and are most vulnerable are most likely to struggle during the transition to online learning. I mean, another way you think about it is that all of the people who are most at risk of losing their jobs in a recession, most at risk of having insufficient health care during a pandemic, um, most at risk of being in uh, having unstable homes to go and live in um, when they aren't able to go to school during the day. Um, those are all the students who in the very best of circumstances would suffer the worst online penalty. So if there's anything that I can implore teachers to do as they go into this work, um, it's to really think about who are your most vulnerable and most struggling students and how can you proactively reach out to them? Um, the students having that are going to have the hardest time in the next few months are not going to be the kids that raise their hand in Zoom meetings and send you an email and things like that. It's going to be the ones that you're not hearing from. So one concrete step um, that I would encourage, and I'll get to another part of this in a second, but one concrete step I would encourage teachers to do is print out your rosters. Um, print out your rosters right now and start thinking about who is likely to be my most vulnerable student either because of their prior achievement in my class or because of what I know about their life circumstances um, and, and put their names on a grid and think about like keeping a tally mark every time you make a contact with a student and think about um, how are you going to make it so that the students who are struggling most get kind of two to three times as many tally marks as the students who are doing okay. Um, which connects maybe to the sort of third made point. So one, one thing I said was partner with your students. Um, a second thing I said was really pay attention to students who might struggle. Um, and a third is I think all of us who are transitioning in one form or another to online learning, we should be really realistic about what's possible here. Um, if you were to study... We don't, we don't know a ton about full-time virtual schools, um, but some of the things we know is that they don't have very good outcomes for most kids. Um, and the second thing we know about them is that they don't really try to make a school that looks like what we think of as school with eight 47-minute periods a day and bell times and things like that. Um, the, the first thing to know is that for the most part, they are coached homeschooling experiences. Um, virtual schools anticipate that there will be a full-time parent at home um, supervising students at least through sixth grade, probably through eighth grade, and it's like desirable above that. During this webinar, we took live questions from participants across the United States via chat, which you'll hear me reference throughout the rest of the interview. 
So someone in the chat window said, what are some ideas that we have for sort of high quality distance instruction um, for really young students? And unfortunately, the answer for that is really young students don't have the executive functioning skills to sit in front of an iPad or a Chromebook all day long um, doing a series of activities. You know, I, I mean, I, you can go on Twitter right now and find lots of people saying like, wow, like staring at webinars and video meetings all day is really tiring. Um, it is particularly tiring for a seven-year-old. Um, so we just need to, we just need to be realistic um, that what what most schools do because of this is they create mostly asynchronous learning environments. They create curriculum that can be done self-paced with a parent providing sort of that executive function timing support and doing a bunch of teaching. Um, and then the main thing that really good virtual school teachers do is they go down their rosters and they check in with students. They call them. They text them. They text their parents and make sure it's okay and safe and all that. They email. They use school messaging tools. They're basically helping people at home move through a self-paced curriculum and then providing support, providing coaching both to the parent and to the students and things like that. Um, that's the. I happen to be on teaching leave this semester, but even with my students at MIT, that's probably the model that I would adopt um, is to say, I'm going to try to give you weekly or bi-weekly challenges with lots of formative assessments built in. So there's lots of reasons for you to ping me, lots of ways for me to give you little bits of feedback about how you're doing. And then I would try as best I could to organize my day around reaching out and connecting with people. So I think there are some schools that in the spirit of trying to maintain a sense of normalcy um, is are trying to... Um, you know, like maintain their school schedule and do a lot of synchronous meeting and those kinds of things. And I'm sure that in some of the places where every student and family has, every student has access to their own device, every family has access to broadband, um, where no one gets sick and everyone is healthy, um, that, uh, and, and people have built really strong classroom cultures beforehand. I think some of that can work. And I think we're going to see some really amazing examples of that. Um, but I think in a lot of places, we're going to find that trying to ask people to, you know, ask 10 year olds to spend all day staring at their screen in 42 minute chunks is unlikely to be all that successful. Um, if I was doing synchronous learning kinds of things, I would probably use that time as much for ritual as for trying to do direct instruction. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how relevant this would be to people, um, but uh, I've, I've done some observations in evangelical schools in the South where every class starts with a little prayer, you know, a, sort of a, a, an invocation to say, you know, God, will you bless us to do some learning in AP biology for the next 40 minutes? And I was thinking, boy, that, that would be a nice thing to do if I was in that faith community a couple of times a day now. Um, and all kinds of schools where have other kinds of traditions like that. I taught in a school where morning assembly was really important. I assume that they're still doing morning assembly of having kids, you know, make silly videos of being cooped up and things like that. Um, I think I think maintaining those connections and those ritual kinds of things will be really important. Um, but I think it's unlikely to assume that, you know, that people can sit around a screen for 15 minutes or an hour, certainly not an hour, uninterrupted and listen and talk with each other and things like that. I would really try to make things like very modular, very goal oriented with lots of opportunities for checking in.
Yeah. You know, it's really striking to me listening to you, Justin, the extent to which a lot of what you're describing about good teaching online is true of good teaching in general, right? We know that teaching and learning is fundamentally a relational activity um, that maybe we just need to put front and center in even a, a, a stronger way in this moment. And I think, you know, in my education, this idea of the student as worker and the teacher as coach was really um, a powerful frame. And the idea that learning can be can be self-directed and that students should have agency in their own learning is something that I think many educators would embrace even within the standard walls of a school. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, if, if I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, for all the challenges of this moment, including challenges of serving kids who are most vulnerable, which you've described, I wonder what, um, what are the opportunities you see in this moment to do something different that might, um, that might be in some ways better or that might allow teachers and students to experiment? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess two things. I would think a lot about um, motivation is going to be a big challenge. And we, when we give kids choice and agency, um, that helps address mo issues of motivation. I, there was a great um, English assignment that I saw. It was from a teacher named Kelly Gallagher who said that in his ELA classes, his goals were to have students write about two pages a day diary, journal kinds of things, uh, using seeds of things that they were seeing around them. Um, you know, news articles, funny ways that people were making do in social distancing, whatever they were feeling or thinking, they were going out in their backyards, seeing how spring was coming alive. Just write two pages a day about what you're experiencing and try to read for about 30 minutes a day. And as you send me these two pages a day, I'm just going to comment and give feedback and ask questions and things like that. That to me seemed like a really worthwhile, really realistic curriculum for the next period. You know, it, it focuses on core skills around writing and reading and observations that people, you know, need to be constantly working and growing in. Um, and it gives students some choice about how they're going to do that. Um, I, 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 you know, um, and somebody found the Kelly Gallagher journal assignment. There's another assignment that I really like from the Worcester Public Schools, which maybe somebody else can find, which was to do a family project, which is what is special about our family. Um, great way to have people connect with each other and do things like that. So a lot of the kind of project-based learning, interest-driven learning sort of approaches. Um, but I, I don't want to – I also – I don't want to be overly – I think we should try, we should, of course, in all circumstances, try to find good things that come out of all this, but we should also be really realistic that like this, this is not disaster capitalism for progressive learning. Like This is going to be hard. Um, and I think people are, are also, we all, you know, I mean, here, like, so here's something I believe, which is another hard thing to believe. Um, the virus grows exponentially. What we're seeing right now, it's going to be twice as bad next week. And then it's going to be four times as bad the week after that. And it's going to be eight times as bad three weeks from now. And I think we as teachers, you know, if we can grasp that and hold that now, it's, you know, and take a deep breath around it, it's going to help us as things get harder in the future. Um, another thought I've had is I think a great exercise to do is to look at what you teach between March and May or March and June and say to yourself, what are the two or three things I really want students to do? What are the two or three things that I like are really most important to me? Um, and that I think should guide a lot of our, I would encourage people to start trimming their goals and curriculum now 
rather than trying to keep up and scrambling and being like, ah, I missed something that was actually really important just because I, you know, got, got a little bit ahead of things. Um, there are a, a couple of folks in the chat who are asking about math. Um, and math is going to be a real challenge here. Um, I have a whole hour long conversation that I had with Michael Pershan, who's a fabulous math teacher in New York city. Um, who's taking four different classes, like ninth grade geometry, eighth grade algebra, fourth grade and third grade online starting next week or something like that. Um, and so teachlabpodcast.com tomorrow will release that whole episode. But for math, it would be the same thing. It's like, What's a set of goals that it, it, it's going to, it's going to be less inquiry oriented. I mean, some people are saying things like, well, just have them do mathematical observations, do cooking with them and things like that. And like, that will work great for the next three days. Um, but, <laughs> but it's not going to be our math learning for the next two months. Um, I would think about creating little packets with realistic goals, um, helping people work through that, having a lot of extension opportunity. For, for, you know, there's some students who are going to be in places where they're really well supported, um, where their where their parents can afford to be there with them, um, where can, they can really shine and, and have great learning in math. There's going to be lots of folks who are home alone or with siblings um, who are stressed because their parents lose their jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and there was a there was a question in the forums too, which was something along the lines of, "Well, what should we do about direct instruction, or what you know, um, like how how much structure or scaffolding can we give to students and things like that?" And there's you know, there's no one right answer to any of these things. My hunch is that a bunch of you teach in classes where you've built really strong relationships with your student, where you've put sort of issues of identity at the front of your conversations with your students from the beginning of the year. And so you can talk really honestly about how you're feeling. Some of you may be teaching in relatively affluent places where your students go home to safe homes with internet connection, with individual access to devices, and things can kind of look the way they look right now in various kinds of ways. Um, and other folks are going to be, you know, teaching students who are like in increasing levels of crisis and it's just going to be our job to try to figure out, you know, well, what can we do to be of service of them and how can I care for them and care for myself? Um, I would say the, you know, and all of it should come back to let's partner with our students as we do this. Let's, let's ask them what they think would work and try to bring some of their ideas into it. Let's try some things for a couple weeks and say, um, what could, how is this working? What, what should we change? What ideas do you have for making this better? What do you want to bring into the instruction or the sharing or the other kinds of things like that? I mean, some really brilliant, beautiful things are going to happen. Um, and, uh, but we also have to, to stay focused on the fact that the students who are going to struggle most with, uh, with this are going to be the students who are most vulnerable and are struggling anyway. Um, you know, Marie uh, M here says, I think I may actually be able to work more one-on-one -on -one with many of my students during this time. And I think that's a great attitude to try to bring to this. Uh, my hunch is, you know, and there's no way of knowing for sure what's going to happen in a pandemic, but my hunch is that teachers who give their students you know, some, uh, some curriculum that can be done at a, at a distance, self-paced, maybe open-ended if that's possible, it's harder in math, and then make a bunch of time to be able to connect with one another. Um, I, I think, I think uh, to be able to connect with students. I mean, I think it is possible too to get kids collaborating with each other. Um, one of the things I was saying with Michael is that, you know, another thing I might do if I had a roster right now is I would say to myself, who are the kids that are really going to struggle that I need to help? 
Who are the kids going to be okay? And then who are the kids who I'm pretty sure can like teach a bunch of this to other folks? Um, and how can I take the folks who are really my, um, you know, my most dependable, most trustworthy folks and help them form small groups, connect with other people, um, and, uh, and things like that. Um, there was another comment here, which was, what can I do to get my students online? Um, a, you know, if you're, if you're in urban areas with limited internet connectivity and limited devices and those kinds of things, and, and parents are losing their jobs and they need those devices to be able to find additional work and do gig work or things like that, um, you know, uh, you, we can't expect students to be able to solve those connectivity problems on their own. Um, I mean, I think the best thing to do is try to make sure that you have phone numbers for all your students and start calling them. Um, you know, see if you can figure out how to, um, how to find times that work with parents schedule and work with kids schedule to be able to, you know, get a 10 or 15 minute conversation in with them about, you know, what are the, what are the writing things? What are the reading things that probably any of our students can do, um, uh, with, with, uh, with anyone. Thanks, Justin. And I appreciate how able you are to be responsive to what's happening in the chat while, while you're sharing all these ideas too. So, um, you know, so much has come up here, um, both about the idea of teaching relationally, about understanding and anticipating the varied needs and challenges, um, that students and teachers and all of us will be facing right now. Um, and also thinking about, you know, what are some of the tools and resources um, that we might have in the communities that, that might be able to support us. What I'd love to do now is pivot and um, talk a little bit and continue to, to talk with Justin as well um, about some ideas for resources and strategies and rituals. And as, as Justin was saying, and practices that you might find useful um, as you're navigating this change. So one of the things that we started to think about as we were thinking, what could we at Facing History do to support teachers um, in, who are navigating this moment was thinking about a sort of, you know, a checklist, not the kind of checklist where you have to check off every single item and get it all done, but a checklist in the sense of, you know, here are some things that you might want to think about as you approach managing this change. In the next segment, you'll hear Laura Tavares reference a super useful checklist. This and all of the resources we mentioned in this episode can be found in the episode's show notes and on our website, teachlabpodcast.com. A lot of the ideas um, in this checklist were inspired by um, teachers who we know globally, um, including in countries where they have been, you know, working online for over a month or six or even six or eight weeks already. There's a wonderful Facebook group that some of you may have seen called um, Educator Temporary School Closures for Online Learning. And they've been writing a lot about which, what I wish I'd known when I'd started. So a lot of our checklist is, is grounded in some of those types of insights and also in a lot of the um, the values about um, communication, connection, and care that we've just been discussing. So when we think about, you know, beginning to approach this transition, one of the questions really just has to do with planning and understanding, you know, what are the platforms and tools that your school or district is making available, or as I see in the chat, 
platforms that you might want to use, but your district is saying you can't use. So understanding the lay of the land and also understanding what supports your district might be offering for students who lack access, um, who don't have a device at home. Some, some districts are working on providing those. You might want to think too about um, what your schedule would be for planning, delivering, and assessing. You know, as Justin said, is there going to be a sort of drop of content once a week? Is it going to be something more regular? Um, and also this question of how and how often will you communicate with students individually? Justin has also talked a lot about um, saving some energy for longer term planning. Justin, do you want to say something about that for a minute? Sure. And then a little bit as a pitch to people who are in administrative roles as well. Um, but uh, um, in any kind of emergency, it can often feel like the most important thing to do is what's kind of most immediate and urgent. Um, but uh, it's actually the case that, that thinking about the future is really important. In a weird twist of my life, I used to run a search and rescue group. Um, and so there used to be uh, senior citizens and little girls and boys and hikers who would get lost in the mountains of Virginia. Um, and I would uh, go lead teams to sheriff's offices to help organize groups to find them. Um, and, you know, and, and we use this system that's called the incident command system that was developed to fight fires in the Mountain West. And they're, they're, it's a little more complicated than this, but there's basically two groups. One group's called operations and one group is called plans. Um, and the operations people are all the people that try to figure out how to put out the fire now or look in the most likely places. But even in the most dire of emergencies, you take two or three smart people and you put them in a church basement and you keep them quiet and you don't make them respond to a media emergency and you sort of give them new information every half hour or so and you say, Imagine what this is going to look like in a week. Imagine what this is going to look like in a month. Imagine what this is going to look like a long time from now. And I think as much as schools feel an enormous – so even when it feels like it should be all hands on deck, it's almost always some hands on deck. And then a couple of hands below deck thinking about what the future should look like. Um, you know, so in your in your teaching teams, you know, that might mean that some people are really scrambling to figure out what's happening right now. Um, but maybe there should be some people who are thinking about, man, what are all the things that we um, can can trim from our curriculum? What are the things that in September or in August, if we can come back early, that we really ought to make sure that kids, you know, get some extra help on or get some extra support on? Um, I would. And for any of you who are in leadership roles, um, I think it's very possible that, uh, um, you know, uh, that that the time that we invest now in planning for the future is going to be amongst the most valuable time that we have. There's only so much that we can do to scramble right away to sort of instantaneously make a nationwide transition to digital learning work in a in, in a system of really gross inequalities. Um, you know, the 100,000 kids who are homeless in New York City are not going to learn are not going to have the same opportunities for learning that lots of other kids are. Um, but uh, but the, but there's a lot that we can do to plan for the future and, and how to help all of those kids get back and get caught up as fast as we can. Yeah, thank you. So after planning comes communication. We've talked about this, um, considering what medium you might use to connect with students. I see some of you saying, um, you know, my district has prohibited one-to-one -one video, which 
I'm, doesn't entirely surprise me. Um, but what types of chat or um, email, text messages, other mediums could you use? Um, do you have a way to get up-to-date contact info for your students if you don't have it? And um, how might you also communicate with parents and caregivers um, about how they can support students' learning? And we have, um, when we deliver this PDF version of the checklist, there's a number of great um, attachments and links and other resources, including some uh, multilingual um, information sheets that you can use with parent communities. The next point on a checklist might be thinking about continuity. Um, you know, are there elements of your classroom, um, including the feeling of your classroom or the nature of your relationships with your students that you would like to stay consistent? And very importantly, what do you want to give yourself permission to let go of? Understanding what a complicated and challenging moment this is. Um, so thinking about um, what you want to prioritize and um, really have be continuous and what you might need to um, put aside for now. The next item on the checklist is thinking about connection, the routines, the strategies, the tools that you can help that you can use to help your students feel connected to you and to each other. That's where some of these rituals might come in. This is where um, using video, using something like Flipgrid, for example, which can be used asynchronously, or maybe you, you are in a position to use something like a Google Hangout or Zoom um, to see each other's faces, to hear each other's voices. And also, um, how can you stay connected to colleagues and maintain a professional support system and a community, um, maybe even a community of educators you don't know, like the ones on this webinar tonight where so much amazing sharing is happening in the chat. The next thing on the checklist, the last thing is care. And this is um, as much about you as it is about your students. Um, taking time to intentionally think about how are you going to take care of yourself what boundaries could you set around working hours and communication windows? And um, what is the stress relief that you might schedule into each day for yourself? Um, what is the outdoor time, the journaling, the mindfulness, the game playing, whatever the activity is that, um, that works for you? So the next thing I'd like to talk a little bit about um, really falls into that sort of ritual and that community space. Um, many of you probably use contracting in your classrooms at the beginning of the year. It's pretty classic in September to gather your students, to work together, to say what kind of learning community do we want to have, how can each of us contribute, and to, you know, as Justin was saying, really partner with your students um, to create that learning space. Um, you know, now in this moment where you're looking at a new learning environment, you still hopefully have the opportunity, if you're going to be connecting with your students online, to shape an intentional space. And I would say that at a moment that is so challenging for um, our hearts, <laughs> as well as our heads, um, this environment of trust is going to be even more important. So we have a new strategy about um, contracting for online community that I just want to preview a little bit um, with you right now. So some things you might do first are to ask students to reflect on their own. It could be reflecting in a Padlet. It could be um, some kind of asynchronous conversation. Um, maybe completing the sentence, when I think about my school closing and shifting to online learning, I feel blank because blank. That makes space for um, a lot of the uh, anxieties that students may be feeling, not just about, about online learning, but about school being closed and what that may mean for them. Um, often what, we, what students might be asked to do is to anonymously just write what that feeling was in one word and put it in a word cloud or on a Padlet. It gives you a really good read of the temperature 
in your in your group um, and helps you think about, well, okay, if these are the feelings, what kind of norms do we want to set for our community? You might also ask students to think about other online learning experiences they've had, as Justin suggested earlier, what worked, um, what perhaps didn't work, what do they know about themselves as learners. Um, or you might use a poem like Mickey Scott Bay Jones' poem, Invitation to Brave Space, which is really powerful. Um, and it's interesting to think about what brave space might look like and feel like right now in this new learning environment. And again, much more information on these in the resource. Um, this is an example of a Padlet where um, this is actually a group of teachers who were reading the Brave Space poem, lifting lines and ideas, and then elaborating on it to describe what kind of learning community they might want to create. So this could be something that if you have this technology available, you might try with your students. Another way to approach contracting is to consider scenarios and then talk together with your students about, well, what might we do? <laughs> what norms might we follow um, when we get frustrated, when we need help, um, when we are, feel isolated and want to feel connected? What can we do? When we notice ourselves getting distracted, <laughs> um, when something's happening at home that makes it hard for us to engage, you can anticipate and actively have conversation about some of these things as a way of um, building a strong foundation for the learning and the connection that you want to have happen. Now, the last piece I'd love to consider a little bit is this question of what student-centered learning might look like. So let's imagine you figured out how you're going to connect with your students. Um, you've established some routines, you've gathered online, and maybe you've um, done some contracting. And now's the time when you're going to be sort of planning and, and working with your students to, to engage in some learning. Um, what might that look like? So when I think about um, student-centered learning, especially in an online space, um, I think about teaching methods that sustain a sense of connection among students, um, student methods that um, approach the whole student, not just sort of students as learners, but also students as whole people with, with feelings and relationships and thoughts. <laughs> um, and I also think about student-centered learning as something that allows students to pursue questions that are meaningful to them, both um, on screen, but also away from screens. So if we think about student-centered learning as connection, you might think about what tools you can use that allow students to actually see and hear each other, because we know that the combination of audio and video has a humanizing effect and it helps us feel connected. So one thing you might try is invite students to write and record six-word memoirs and share them on a Flipgrid. This is a little bit like the um, you know Kelly Gallagher journaling about what you've been experiencing. Um, and I could imagine actually writing for a little while as a student about um, what this experience of trying to learn at home has been like, distilling that into a six-word memoir, and then recording and sharing it on a Flipgrid. I think being able to see your classmates and hear from them would be really powerful. When we want to think about reflection, which I think at this time is going to be um, you know, as important as it ever has been. Um, you might think about multiple entry points that invite students to reflect both in words, but also in images and reflections that can be private or shared. This might be a time for something completely offline, like writing in an actual, in an actual book or on a piece of paper. Um, and the teacher could just provide prompts. 
Um, or it might mean reflecting in a way that's more visible using a strategy like color simple image, um, something from Project Zero that we use a lot at Facing History that invites students to distill an experience, a text, um, a moment in history into a color, a symbol, and an image. That's something that they might draw or write about, um, take a photo of, and share even on a class social media feed. Student-centered learning is also about inquiry. Um, ways to approach inquiry in online learning might be engaging with a common text and then um, independently, and then annotating and interpreting it collectively. Um, close viewing is something that a lot of teachers use with video. Um, at Facing History, we have a collection of hundreds of um, documentaries and other types of videos that are streaming online that students actually can access directly. They don't need a login or anything to go on our site and find them. So if you as a teacher would like your students to to um, watch a film um, either on their, on their own or together as a class on a shared platform. You can share a close viewing protocol and they can even um, you know, watch a bit of the film with you and then pause for discussion, um, either on audio or in a chat feature, depending on the platform that you're using. This is also a time though, I think too, about where students can, you know, who have motivation can find the agency to define what they want to learn. Um, there was a wonderful article in EdWeek about um, giving assignments that really invited students to pick one new thing that you want to learn, work on learning it and write about what that process was or following a passion. Um, those are ways I think to build a student-centered approach that um, supports inquiry and curiosity, even without any kind of technological capability. And then finally, student-centered learning is about discussion. We know that learning is social. Um, and so we want to think about what are the different tools that we have that can allow students to exchange ideas and extend their thinking and do perspective taking. A strategy that we use a lot at Facing History that actually really works very well online is called Big Paper or Silent Conversation. And this is a strategy where you might take um, a common text. It could be a poem. It could be a primary source. It could be a theorem. You put it in the middle of, if you're in real life, a big piece of white paper, and then you invite students to respond in writing, to annotate, to underline, to question, and then ultimately to write back and forth to each other. This is the kind of thing that you can transfer really easily to a Google Doc um, using the um, comment function or the annotate functions that are available there. And what's really wonderful is that it makes students thinking visible. It's something that you can hold on to and return to over time. So I'm going to take a quick look at the Q&A pod here and see um, what other folks have asked about. Let's see. Justin, did you see any questions going by in the chat that you wanted to highlight or um, address? Um, I mean, I think people are doing a lot of great sharing of resources. I think people are asking the question, how do I take the best of what I've been doing and continue to try to do that in some online kind of way? Um, I would, I would encourage people to keep thinking about like, what's the simplest way using tools that students already know to do these kinds of things. I mean, especially, especially if you're working in a middle school or a high school context um, where you're teaching with five, you know, the same student has five or six other teachers. If this is a time where all six of those teachers are experimenting with new technology things, it's going to be pretty hard for the students to be able to sort of process all of those different things. Um, so think about, you know, think about how you're coordinating with your colleagues and, and, and those kinds of things. That's a, that's a great point. Thank you. So something I'm thinking about um, is this idea that they have in medical education. Um, they say, see one, 
do one, teach one when you're learning a new procedure. So um, we've talked a little bit about some of these tools tonight. You've seen an example of a Padlet. Um, we've talked a little bit about Flipgrid. So I want to say thank you for me. I want to say a huge thank you to Justin for sharing um, so much thoughtfulness, honesty, insight, experience. It was really great to be in conversation with you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Laura. And I just want to wish all the teachers uh, who are here joining us the very best of luck. I'm at BJFR on Twitter, and I'm totally happy to try to follow up with people and things like that. But uh, it's just, uh, it's going to, it's, there are challenging times ahead. And I'm, and I'm super grateful for all the teachers that are out there trying to take good care of their students and take good care of themselves. So thank you. Yeah, 100%. So thanks, everybody. I'm Justin Reich, and this is Teach Lab. Thanks for listening. We hope that these conversations on Teach Lab can be helpful to you as teachers as you're trying to take care of your students and as parents and family members as you try to take care of your family and your community. In next week's episode, we'll share a conversation from NPR's On Point with Meghna Chakrabarty, where we're talking about how higher education is dealing with the pivot to online learning. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at BJFR and feel free to share your questions and experiences there and I'll try to get back to you. The show was recorded by our dear friends at Facing History and Ourselves. It was produced by Amy Corrigan and sound mixing was by Garrett Beasley. We'll see you next week. <laughs>